newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis every week talking about the news media and what we've seen in recent days. I'm Rex Smith uh, of the Upstate American on Substack, former editor of the Times Union, and I am here with my colleagues, Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette in Schenectady, and Ira Fussfeld, retired as publisher and before that editor of the Kingston Daily Freeman and affiliated publications. Hello, you all. Glad to have you with us. On this program, we're going to talk especially about misinformation and truth. So let me turn to you, Alan, first, if, if you don't mind. And just um, mind. Talk, <laughs> talk to me a little bit about this notion. We are in such an odd time, and you're kind of uniquely positioned as a political scientist who also runs a journalistic enterprise, where we have a political party in a democratic system, a two-party system, where one party is unwilling to support democracy and is turning away from verifiable truth. And I wonder what that means in terms, first, of how in the world we cover this, how in the world we should do this as journalists, where truth seems to matter, right? Well, you're right. And of course, we have to say so. I mean, look, we are not excused. We have one of the greatest potential tyrants in the history of this country, if not the greatest, in Donald Trump. And he has his hands clearly on the throats of the people who used to be what we would call conservative Republicans or Republicans, and now they're Trumpistas. And so Trump is one of the greatest lying, 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 lying liars of all times. And he has transferred that to his people. So you get a bunch of people, for example, Rex, who were on January 6th in the Capitol and they were invaded and they didn't know whether they were going to live or die. And there were threats being offered to the vice president at the time and to members of the Congress. And they all were very upset. And several of them, like McCarthy, who I have just nothing but contempt for, the Republican leader, and he called the president. And now they've forgotten the whole thing. So now when they lie, it's really despicable because they are just making it up as they go along in order to survive politically. And that's where I'm at. Yeah, I'm not a political scientist, nor, nor am I a historian, but I'm inclined to believe that this is not a new trend, this playing fast and loose with the truth. But I, I think it has evolved, and with the evolution of new media and the oncoming of new media and so many more platforms out there that people who want to lie, who want to fool the public, have developed it into an art and are taking advantage of the current system so that they don't have to go to the traditional media sources. And so, you know... Richard Nixon lied, Ronald Reagan lied about Iran-Contra, but it was important to report and all of the rest. But the kind of discussions we're having now were not discussions they were having then. It was all sort of built into the cake that politicians were going to lie. I think that it's become much more dangerous as the media landscape has grown. True. 
But Judy, think about this and give me your thoughts on this. How do we as journalists, though, respond to people who still affirm, still don't accept the verifiable fact that Joe Biden won the election? What are we supposed to do about interviewing and quoting and, and giving coverage to people who don't buy the fundamental fact of democracy? Right. I'm sure we all agree that politicians have always told different shades of the truth and sometimes fast and loose with the truth. But whether or not the 2020 election was, you know, elected Joe Biden is a distinctly dangerous lie that I think we need to seriously hold people to account for. And so the idea is, do you give them a platform or not? Do you quote them in print? Do you give them really big platforms on the Sunday morning news shows and other kinds of social media contexts? And, you know, my position is there are a lot of congressmen. There are a lot of people in the Senate, a lot of people in the House. Why do we still go to the big lawyers, the Kevin McCarthy. I understand he's in a leadership position, but they go to Ted Cruz, they go to Ron Johnson, and these are all people who are making a name for themselves as prolific spreaders of this lie. And my hat's off to people like Jake Tapper on CNN, who says he's not going to have them on their show, on his show. For us at the local level, what do you do when you have a congressperson who has embraced the big lie? Do you try to nail them down on why, or does that just you know fuel the fire? I think they have us in a box. By us, I mean traditional media, in that if you don't have somebody on, such as Jake Tapper suggests, then you're leaving yourself open to the claim of censorship and bias and all those terms that are resonating with the far right. If you do have them on and you ask the questions that need to be answered, and the, the, the people who are going to answer these questions have learned how to handle this. They've learned how to turn it around on us. And it reaches a point in these interviews where the interviewer does not want to pursue it any further because it looks like he's bullying or fighting. And that puts him in a, in a corner as well. People are not able to make the distinction between bullying and tough questioning. So, as I say, I think this has evolved to a point where the people who want to beat the system have really gone to school and know how to do it. You know, there's great precedent for this when you think about it. Stalin did it in Russia, or the Soviet Union at the time, as it was called. Putin's doing it now. The Chinese did it again and again and again. And Trump, who called everybody else every name he could think of, is the biggest liar of all. You know, here he is, best friends with Putin, and doing exactly the same thing the great scoundrels of history have done. So, should we be surprised? No. But, you know, this is a very terroristic time, filled with terror for the American people, and I think it's something that is reflected in what the press does about it, because the press has, by and large, been honest brokers, and they are not being permitted for that now. So how do you deal with the case of Elise Stefanik, who is going to become, very shortly, the number yep. three ranking member of the Republican hierarchy in the House of Representatives, based entirely on the fact that she is going to be replacing somebody who will not bow to untruth? Now, you may not be a fan of Liz Cheney, but she is speaking the truth and saying Donald Trump did not win the election supporting the big lie that Trump won, that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president, is ultimately damaging to the Republican Party. But because Elise Stefanik is standing with Trump, she then gets to this high point. Do we 
in any way hold her to account, we who are covering her in her community, Alan, you run radio stations that are in Elise Stefanik's district. And I don't believe she goes on the air with you, right? She doesn't come on to no, talk she to won't, you. No, she won't come on. We've invited her many, Would many times. Would you have times. her on, Alan? Absolutely. Would you have are you her kidding? On? I mean, that's a great example. You'd be a great person to interview her, but would you have her on and allow her to spew the lies on this air? Absolutely, I would. You know, I had this week on our Capital Connection program, I had a long talk with the chairman of our conservative party in New York State. He was thoughtful. He was good. I tested him where I thought I could. He gave me his opinion. Everybody gets treated well, but would I have her on in a minute? And we have invited her again and again, and she doesn't come. I'm not scared of her, or let's put it differently, I'm not scared of the likes of her. Well, here's what CNN's Pamela Brown says on CNN. She says there are three buckets that you can go in, and if you think about it as television, she says first you can not air those people who are committed to the lie. Second, you can put them on and challenge them. Or third, you can just put them on and not bring it up at all. And if you bring it up, if you challenge them, you're going to end up getting into this real contentious area where you're just wrestling about truth and where these people are going to say, you know, you're, you're holding on to something that give it up, give it up, uh, or let's move beyond that. You can't move beyond that if you care about the truth. And, and journalism is all about trying to get at the truth. And the problem is the majority of the Republican Party has decided to walk away from the truth, to actually fight against truth. And what is different about now, Judy talks about the fact that we have, in fact, had these lies forever. The difference is that now we have every shred of evidence of what is true because we have video of everything that went on. We have courts that have decided about the election. There is no longer a dispute about what's real. There's a dispute about whether people are going to believe what's real. So I just think it's difficult. People don't have a rational relationship with information. We have an emotional relationship with information. And so we believe what we want to believe rather than believing what can rationally be shown to be true. And that makes it just very difficult for journalists. You know, this is a uh, show about journalism. And uh, when you think about it, journalism is a major plank. It's a major part of what we call, consider our American democracy, our Republican democracy in this country. This is, of course, the way that dictators start. If you listen to the rhetoric of a Donald Trump, you know that he's a potential dictator. You know that he's screaming that when Facebook takes him off, that's terror. That's awful. That's not the way that Americans should be. But you know, you know the minute he gets into office as a dictator, he's already shown us that, he'll be talking about everybody else not doing it. So that's part of where we are. Can I just go back to the hypothetical? I, I have no doubt, Alan, that if you could get Elise Stefanik to come on your program, you would do a, an admirable job interviewing her. You would ask the right questions. You would ask tough questions. But if her responses were simply the same as most of her colleagues in leadership in Washington, which is to spin the lie and ignore the questions and turn things around, at what point do you say, why am I putting you on the air? You're, all you're doing is lying to my audience. Should I have you on the air in the first place. Isn't that the ultimate question right now for many of us in the mainstream media? We have invited her time and again. She won't come on. She won't come on because she's scared. She's scared of those questions, and she thinks there's no percentage in coming on. That's why she's not on. And no, I, re I reject that. I think we as a public radio station owe it to our public and to the people who put in and to their confidence in us that we will 
allow people to come on. And if it means you say, and many journalists do, you're not telling the truth or you're avoiding the question, Congresswoman. I mean, that those are the things that you have to do. I don't think there's any percentage in saying, let's not interview her. Rex's paper, old paper, the uh, Times Union, certainly wouldn't have done that. I certainly don't believe in it. I think that that's what we have to do until we are no more. Well, I agree with you, by the way. I just was curious to see what you thought about it. Sure. The the key difference here is that one of the problems you have with live radio, television, and even web broadcasts is it's live. And one of the ways newspapers work really well doing this is that there's an editor involved. And I almost think that these interviews would be so much better handled if there was some editing involved. And, you know, pre-record them and then let an editor get involved. I know people think that's censoring, but that's what good editors do. They they separate the wheat from the chaff, and that would make for a far more intelligent, reasonable, and truthful interchange. And then they would be screaming. Then they would be screaming, you know, you're, you're editing me and you're and, – and you know that. No, I'm all for live broadcast as much as we can. And when we do recorded broadcasts on the Capital Connection, for example, or other shows that we do, we stick pretty much to what they said. We don't try to fool with them. Well, it's not fooling with them. I mean, I think Judy has a point here, and it's one that actually NPR, Nancy Barnes, the president of NPR over the past year, has moved NPR a bit away from live interviews because people are able to manipulate uh, what goes on live, and you can't hold people as well to account for their lies. When you can put what someone has said previously alongside the lie they're telling now, or put the videotape of what really happened alongside a false description of it, that's pretty powerful. Can't you do both? Well, not if you're doing live to tape, you know, what you call live to tape, which is basically what Capital Connection is, or Congressional Corner. You're basically, as you said, uh, giving people a chance to say what they say, and and you you put it on. But imagine if you produced it. Uh, I'm just making more work for for you and David Gusina. But if you actually juxtapose what people are saying now alongside what they've said before, that would be pretty interesting. You can still do that. You can still say, but you said the last time we talked. You certainly can do that. And please, I would prefer you didn't, you know, lower your nose and talk to us about good journalism. Because, <laughs> because I, I, that's what this show is about. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, no, I think there's room for both. And to posit it as one or the other is probably a big mistake. No. But, no. but live broadcasting is a big part of the American experience. You would never have a Meet the Press. You would never have a program like that, which is adored by the American people because they know they're going to be seeing it real time and that nobody's going to be playing with it. Yeah, you're right. There's there's room for both. I mean, live is actually great, of course, when the Hindenburg explodes. There's nothing that can beat live, but there is something useful about actually I – mean, this is why I loved being – Uh, in print, uh, and and why I think uh, Americans lose something with the demand for immediacy that we have now in the digital age when we want to know right now what happened five seconds ago. That's fine, but you lose the opportunity to take a step back and actually give some perspective that helps people to better understand what's going on. And that's what it is when journalists are making decisions about how to cover the aftermath of the insurrection. It really is essential that we, in order to hold people's feet to the fire, those who supported the insurrectionists, those who defend Trump's big lie, I think it really helps to 
have the material that shows people what is really going on here. Which is why you do both. Which is why you do both. And I have to say, you know, when you talk about WAMC, for example, which you have brought up public radio, we have an incredible news director in Ian Pickus who makes it clear. I mean, the things that you're talking about, putting things in context and comparing things, you said before, he does that. They do that. Mm -hmm. His reporters do it. So, you know, it's not one or the other. It's the idea that you can do it all. But, you know, did you ever hear in Spanish class, I don't know if you ever took Spanish, but in Spanish class, they always talk to us about the last cry of the moor. The last cry of the moor. You know, literature is so so half century the, the, ago. No. The, <laughs> the, the, the last cry of the moor was Bob Deal, I believe, having been forced out of wherever they were, Spain or whatever, and I don't remember, cried. You know, he cried. And when I hear you guys from the newspaper industry, I get the feeling I'm hearing the last cry of the moor. You're still holding on to something that is quickly disappearing from America. And we have Judy, we have Ira, and we have you. Thank God we have me because... <laughs> <laughs> I've always said that. <laughs> I think everybody says that, Alan. Thank God for Alan Shartok. I I hear it every day, practically. <laughs> I'll, bet, I'll, I'll bet you do. Can't you shut that guy up? Or as you once said, can't you just smack him? <laughs> Folks, if you're just joining us, The Media Project is a half-hour commentary and analysis from WAMC in Albany. I'm Rex Smith, here with Alan Shartok, Judy Patrick, and Ira Fussfeld. We talk about media issues, and you can share your views. Media at WAMC.org is how you would email us your thoughts. And, of course, within the past week, we have had the decision by the Facebook Oversight Board, which is very much a part of this conversation. The independently, well, let's say, the Facebook hand-picked board of experts uh, reviewing Facebook's decision to suspend Donald Trump because of his role in inciting the violence that overtook the Capitol on January 6th. And, of course, the Oversight Board fundamentally affirmed the decision to ban Trump. I guess the question that you have to ask is, doesn't this actually make Facebook a little bit more like a journalistic organization, as we've often said they ought to be? You know, Facebook has always said, we're just a technology company. We just give people a chance to post stuff. But now it seems to me that Facebook over the past couple of years has been beginning to behave more like a rational journalistic organization making judgments about what ought to be and ought not to be on its platform. So I, for one, applaud this. I think this is a step in the right direction of Facebook actually taking responsibility for what it puts out there in the world, for its great power. Anybody disagree with that notion? I think they punted here. I, first of all, I, I underscore what you said earlier, that this was a hand-picked board. It's independent in name, but, you know, it's very closely aligned to Zuckerberg. He's the one who selected the people on it. I just think that Facebook doesn't know what, what to do at this point, because I think it's beginning to understand the immense power it has, and it likes it, and it's making a lot of money as a result of it because of all the eyeballs that it attracts. But it also understands the serious nature of where it and we are and our country regarding what it posts and what it doesn't post. You know, we just had a discussion about should we be allowing people to be interviewed if all they're going to do is lie? Well, if the general opinion is, yes, we should, then shouldn't Trump be given free reign on Facebook the same as everybody else is on Facebook? I'm not suggesting I think that should, but I am suggesting I don't think Facebook knows either. 
And remember, Ira and everybody else, that Facebook was in big trouble. They're not doing this because they were looking for an intellectual, you know, approach to this. They're doing it because they were afraid they were going to be held responsible if they didn't do something, and that's why they're doing it. So, so it makes great sense to me that they've tried to cover their behinds. Let's face it, that's the nature of the world, and that's what they did. My hat's offered to the Oversight Board, which essentially kicked it back to Facebook because Facebook really didn't have good rules or justification for what they did. And they said, hey, Facebook, come up with some rules. The metaphor used for this oversight board is that it's a Supreme Court of, of Facebook. But the Supreme Court acts based on the basis of a constitution and on, on laws passed. And really? the oversight board saying, hey, we don't have that. And Facebook, you've got to come up with those. You get thrown into Facebook jail, they call it. People get thrown <laughs> into Facebook jail all the time, you know, for three days or 21 days. They never know why. Facebook is this amorphous, anonymous thing that does things to people. And the oversight board's telling Zuckerberg, hey, come up with some rules. You know, be a publisher, essentially. Yeah, I think that rather than a Supreme Court, the better analogy would be the public editor like the New York Times used to have. or Used the, to the have. Person. Yeah, they no longer have a public editor. How come? How role. come? Good question. They have replaced it with a desk, supposedly. But the difference is the public editor had this contract that guaranteed independence. This would be somebody actually on the payroll of the New York Times who would question who would have a voice free reign to second guess Times editors. Now, I never, as a newspaper editor, liked that model because it seemed to me that most decisions are collaborative in newsrooms. When you have a tough ethical decision, you get a bunch of people together in a room and you, your best editors talk about it and figure out what to do. And giving a second shot at that to some public editor, some ombuds person, I don't know that that person deserves that power, but I think you admire Facebook for at least trying to get a little bit of a broader take on these decisions. I think you're right that they need to have standards that they apply because Facebook is kicking people off and taking action all the time that we don't hear about because they're not as high profile as Donald Trump. That was so self-serving, I can't believe it. Think about this for a moment. What we have is something called the iron law of oligarchy. Come on, Rex. You know, in your newsroom and in everybody else's newsroom, certainly not at WAMC, though. What the, what the, <laughs> certainly not. No. <laughs> what, the top, what the top people are thinking too often becomes, you say the top editor has decided what was right. Come on. Uh, we know better than that. You know, there. What do you mean? People are... Well, we know better than you, you know talk what? to people. We know that people will respect position in life. And if yeah. you're the editor of the paper, you have more of a say than if you are the copy editor or the copy. So boy. what's the alternative? How would you have this? Uh, I don't know. What the, I just wanted to deal with what you were saying. That's all. I think oh, you maybe. misunderstood what I was saying. It, yeah, It wouldn't be the first time. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying that decision-making in a newsroom is often a collaborative process. And you get a bunch of people involved and you think about things. And that the difficulty with the public editor concept is you're giving one person a column in the publication to say, well, I didn't like that decision. And that's putting a lot of voice, giving a big voice to one person to uh, as opposed to the group that made the decision before. But, you know, ultimately, somebody owns the press, uh, that is right. the printing press, or somebody runs Facebook, that would be Zuckerberg, and, and somebody somewhere then 
has the accountability responsibility, has to make the decision. Don't you think the ombudsman phase of our industry was just that, a phase? There was a time, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago, where there was a great concern in the print business that we weren't responsive enough to our readers, and so we wanted to make sure that the readers had a voice or, or they had an ear that they could go to, and that was particularly true with larger papers. Smaller papers couldn't afford to have an ombudsman, so the big papers hired ombudsmen, and people could write to them, and then they could in turn question the people who made decisions at the newspapers, and they would write a column about it. And I'm not sure if there are any ombudsmen left anywhere. I just think that sort of faded away because the industry had different problems or the problems that they thought were going to be solved by the ombudsman weren't solved. People still didn't trust us. They still complained about us. And we collectively said, well, we don't need the ombudsman anymore. It didn't do what we thought it would do. Am I wrong about that? I think Probably. the theory is that the digital world is such that it should be self-correcting, right? Errors should be exposed by the digital viability of information, and, and the citizens ought to be able to tell it. So you don't really need an ombudsman because there are so many millions of people acting in that role. I think that's the theory. In fact, though, as we have seen, the conversation we started this program with, so many distortions are encouraged uh, by those in positions of power that it's hard for people who buy information based upon their emotion or their preconceived notions. It's hard for people to know what really is true. So we just find somebody we kind of like. A lot of people like Donald Trump and they believe what what he tells them, all the evidence to the contrary notwithstanding. It is a constant struggle for people who care about the truth, which is fundamentally what journalism is about. You have the violins ready here, Alan. This is where you bring in the, the part. Of no, but I, but I, but I always appreciate. <laughs> I always appreciate violins, and I do think this is a sticky wicket. No question about it. We know that we know that there are people who disagree with the things that we say in our media presentations, uh, and we have to figure out ways to do that. On the morning program on WAMC, we get tons of letters, and it's up to Joe Donahue to read them. And he reads a lot of critical letters, I'll tell you that right now. So there are ways to do it. And it's yeah, I think important. there's a, a pretty vibrant media criticism industry out there, too. When the New York Times makes a mistake, I think the media columnists at the Washington Post often will jump on that story. Or there are lots of others that do that. In addition to regular folks saying stuff on Twitter, Facebook, there's a lot. There are some professional media critics out there that are still doing that job. They tend to focus, though, on the bigger outlets. So you don't see if you know if your local paper is making a mistake, that's usually not going to be called to task by anybody except the local paper. All part of the ecosystem in which misinformation struggles with truth, a great topic for the show that we could go on. Alan, I wish you'd let us have a whole hour for this. My gosh, this show. Me too. I think the show should be an hour. (laughs) No. You want to know what I remember from Spanish class? It was, and it's pertinent to what Rex is saying. The only thing I remember is OEAL Timbre, which was meant there's the bell, the class is over. So OEAL Timbre, the program is over. Yeah, timbre. Okay, here comes the timbre. Alan Shartok, Ira Fussfeld, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith with a special gratitude to our valiant producer, David Cassina, and to you folks for joining us this week on The Media Project. Big shots for Laredo. Now publishers are such interesting people. 
It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs> 